Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Corey Shockey. I'm the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm moderating today's program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual series, and we'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all of our other programs possible. We're grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club in these uncertain times. Today, I have the great pleasure to be talking to George Packer, staff writer at The Atlantic, author of the book, Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of Americans of the American Century, which is now out in paperback. A longtime journalist, George's reporting has covered the Civil War in Sierra Leone, the war in Iraq, and more. In Our Man, he examines Richard Holbrook, a trailblazing diplomat responsible for the Dayton Accords, or at least in part responsible for the Dayton Accords, which ended the Balkan Wars and is considered by some to be America's greatest diplomatic achievement in the post-Cold War era. Equally admired and detested in Washington, Holbrook's ego and drive ensured that he never rose to the highest levels of government that he desired. If you're watching along with us and have a question you'd like me to ask George, please put it in the text chat on YouTube, and I'll be asking them later in the program. George, it was so delightful to see the smile spread across your face at that description of Holbrook's ego and drive. One of my favorite things about this book is just how beautifully, pungently written it is. And I hope, George, you might start our session today by reading us a couple of passages from it that you think give a sense of the book. Thanks so much for doing this, Corey, and welcome, everybody. Um, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs. I'll keep it short. Um, First, the, the beginning, the first paragraph of the prologue, and then the last paragraph of the prologue, which puts Holbrook in his, uh, in his historical context. Holbrook, yes, I knew him. I can't get his voice out of my head. I still hear it, saying, you haven't read that book, you really need to read it. Saying, I feel, and I hope this doesn't sound too self-satisfied, that in a very difficult situation where nobody has the answer, I at least know what the overall questions and moving parts are. Saying, I gotta go, Hillary's on the line. That voice, calm, nasal, a trace of older New York, a sing-song cadence when he was being playful, but always doing something to you, cajoling, flattering, bullying, seducing, needling, analyzing, one-upping you, applying continuous pressure like a strong underwater current. So that by the end of a conversation, even two minutes on the phone, you found yourself far out from where you'd started, unsure how you got there, and mysteriously exhausted. (laughs) And then the end of the prologue. What's called the American century was really just a little more than half a century, and that was the span of Holbrook's life. It began with the Second World War and the creative burst that followed, the United Nations, the Atlantic Alliance, containment, the free world. And it went through dizzying lows and highs until it expired the day before yesterday. The thing that brings on doom to great powers and great men, is it simple hubris 
or decadence and squander, a kind of inattention, loss of faith, or just the passage of years. At some point, that thing set in. And so we're talking about an age gone by. It wasn't a golden age. There was plenty of folly and wrong. But I already miss it. The best about us was inseparable from the worst. Our feeling that we could do anything gave us the Marshall Plan and Vietnam, the peace at Dayton, and the endless Afghan war. Our confidence and energy, our reach and grasp, our excess and blindness, they were not so different from Holbrook's. He was our man. That's the reason to tell you this story. That's why I can't get his voice out of my head. It's such a beautiful way to start a book that is both um, a biography of somebody who was important and in many ways emblematic. But you make a bigger claim than just telling Holbrook's story as that conclusion of the preface showed. And I want to draw you out a little bit more about your big idea about America and the world towards the end of the 20th century. Because as I was reading the book, it it felt in type similar to me to David Halberstam's uh, book about Vietnam, right? The best and the brightest. That's high where, praise in my book, by the way, very high praise. Oh, well, well earned in my judgment that, that Holbrook is somehow emblematic of the American age. And I want, I'd like to draw you out a little bit more on that. In particular, choices that he made that you think are microcosms of the broader American, um, both, both, um, um, big ideas, big aspirations, the ability to shape the international order, but also a dramatic overestimation of that ability, bringing tragic consequences. Holbrook was born in 1941. That was the year Henry Luce of Time Magazine coined the phrase, the American century. And it was the year the United States entered World War II and took the stage as a, glo- a great global power for the first time, really. Um, Holbrook died in 2010. He was stricken with a aortic dissection in Hillary Clinton's office uh, at fitting. the State Department, the office he had always wanted to occupy himself and had never reached. Um, and I would say 2010, give or take a few years, is a pretty good marker for when you can say America as a as a world leader, as an, the indispensable world leader that people like Holbrook and Madeleine Albright and Bill Clinton and others saw us as, uh, was coming to an end. So his lifespan was the span of that period when, for better and worse, the world looked to us for leadership. We assumed leadership. And Holbrook as a person, both assumed we were indispensable in solving the big problems of the world. That was in his DNA. It was where it was how he grew up. The people he grew up revering George Marshall, Dean Acheson, George Kennan, Harry Truman, Franklin Roosevelt, kind of were the architects of that American world order. Um, He didn't know any other. 
And he assumed it, I think it would always be that way if only we had the will to do it. And Holbrook himself, who had this equal balance of massive egotism and real idealism, uh, and sometimes the balance got out of balance, and that's when he got into trouble. Holbrook assumed himself as the man in the middle of the action whenever there was action that he was near, and he was almost always near the action. Hillary Clinton said to me he was the zealot of American foreign policy. He was everywhere you look between the Kennedy and Obama years, you could sort of find the traces of Richard Holbrook. So in that way, he did represent, embody, as well as live through that period of, uh, of American leadership. So one of the ways that you document um, in a really discouragingly, but accurately, is the corruption of the elite model that Holbrook represented. The unreflective ease with which he and so many others, actually including Secretary Clinton, profited from their government experience by be, becoming Wall Street um, celebrity magnets uh, and the way that that Talk a little bit more about that trajectory, because I think you make a case that that really resonates for me in the book, that the seediness, the sense of entitlement to profit um, and the way the sort of legal but corrupt way that Holbrook also represented that um, collapses public support for that elite model and really has a powerful, um, is, a, is a precursor of the rise of President Trump and what he represents. I think that's absolutely right. It's painful to hear you put it so clearly, but it's true. Holbrook's heroes were the wise men, as they were called. They were all men. They were all white men. They were um, occupied the highest reaches of government, banking, and law. And they moved back and forth between Wall Street or New York and Washington, or between the private sector in Washington and the public sector. Clark Clifford had the ear of every uh, president, especially the Democrats, from Truman to Carter. Um, George Ball was a, a Wall Street um, lawyer, investor, who you know, became a, a, a statesman in several administrations. So those were the people Holbrook emulated. But by the time Holbrook came along, that establishment was crumbling. Vietnam, the rise of um, the women's and civil rights movements, and just changes in American society made it impossible for there to be this sort of um, class of people who had the ear of power without being accountable to the public and who just were in a small, tight circle who just all knew each other and um, managed to you know, get their views known to Kennedy, Johnson, and the rest. It's not as though that was a terrible world. They actually got a lot of things done. They were quite capable. Um, they were, as as uh, someone said to me, they couldn't take a piss without a strategy. <laughs> they they were people who were constantly thinking about what was possible and how to do it. But in Holbrook's time, 
that model was gone. And instead, a kind of, you know, the, the Holbrooks of the world were not insiders. They came in from the outside and had to claw their way into what they thought was the establishment. One of them was his sort of friend, sort of rival, Henry Kissinger, who uh, was not born into any establishment and who also represented a combination of, you know, foreign policy uh, expertise and prowess and a sort of legal corruption in the form of Kissinger Associates, which traded on all of his contacts uh, with China um, and and other countries to create a huge uh, business empire. That became the model for a lot of people in foreign policy who were at the top. And Holbrook, being less housebroken than most, less concerned about appearances, cut more corners than most of them. And it kept tripping him up. He got in trouble with conflicts of interest when he was both Clinton's envoy to the Balkans and also working for Credit Suisse. Um, He was on the board of AIG in the years before it collapsed. He um, had a sweetheart loan from Angelo Mazzillo, um, whose countrywide financial was so central to the financial collapse. So he was part of that elite that kind of took for granted, as you say, that they had prerogatives the rest of the country didn't have, and that in a sense, they had earned those prerogatives by public service, when in fact, the public, especially with Iraq and Afghanistan and the financial crisis, had less and less faith in their judgment and in their authority, so that by the end, they had lost that authority, and Donald Trump played on that by essentially saying it's a whole class of corrupt losers and we need to clean house and bring some other kind of uh, people in. And and I would even punctuate that more strongly with with regard to President Trump, that the corruption that is overt in the Trump administration, the Mar-a-Lago, that all of that Ivanka Trump's uh, trade, all of that stuff, President Trump and the people around him say, we're no different than everybody else. We just don't pretend we're better. Right. Uh, he came in He came in with the slogan, drain the swamp, which was a powerful slogan because the whole country knew that Washington had become a swamp of corruption, even if it was all legal, all the worse in some ways, if it was all legal. Yeah. What Trump has done is, of course made the swamp much bigger and deeper um, and turned what had been a kind of a private, more quiet, um, revolving door corruption into naked, open corruption in which the Foreign Service and the Civil Service had been browbeaten and, um, and cowed into becoming tools of his own personal interest and in which he and his family have openly um, profited um, his, he, his daughter, his son-in-law, um, and his sons. And yes, they, you know, they of course deny it because he lo- tells 379 lies a day, but it is more extreme. He essentially found a, I, my image for it is he found a patient that whose immune system was compromised by years of, of, uh-huh. you know, illness, underlying illness, and he ravaged it with an infection that may well kill it. 
So that was Trump's way of draining the swamp. So for participants in this conversation who haven't yet read George's book, that ability to give a vivid description um, and a visual description is all throughout the 500 pages of this magnificent book. George, I want to pull you into talking about the first of three big sections of the book, um, where you make a case for the early idealism that that you describe as marking Holbrook's um, career. And I didn't see it as much as you did in his Vietnam experience. So, so make the case, please, for the idealistic motivations of Holbrook's diplomacy. And when we look at Vietnam, we, we see the, the biggest disaster in the history of American foreign policy. I, I mean, in a way, Iraq may have had more a, a, a harder effect on our long-term influence around the world than Vietnam did, but as a sheer uh, blow to young men, uh, to young people, to the Vietnamese themselves, as a the sheer loss of life and of of waste and and cruelty. There's nothing to compare to Vietnam. But in 1963, when Holbrook was 22, he joined the Foreign Service, answered Kennedy's call. And his first post was exactly where he wanted it, South Vietnam. He wanted to see a war. He wanted to be where the action was. And that was really the only war going on at the time the U.S. had any involvement in. And his impulse was the same as that of Halberstam and Sheehan, Neil Sheehan, and of the whole young foreign service who were his peers, Anthony Lake um, and Frank Wisner and Peter Tarnoff, uh, and a whole generation of young people serving the government, which was, we are here to bring democracy to South Vietnam, uh, to fight the Cold War in the latest, in the newest theater, to stop communism. They all believed that. The smartest of them quickly saw that it wasn't so simple. And Holbrook was one of those. He, from his position where he had been posted, the Mekong Delta, which was actually the most intense fighting of the war at that point, 63, he was the senior American civilian in an entire province at age 22, which doesn't happen anymore. He saw that we were lying to ourselves about our progress and that we were losing the Vietnamese people by treating it like a conventional war with heavy firepower instead of as a, an insurgency. He thought we could fight a better war. It's sort of the John Paul Van spirit that Neil Sheehan wrote about in A Bright Shining Lie. And Holbrook was part of that bright shining lie. But I don't think we can completely judge people of that generation by our, what we now know about Vietnam. They thought Vietnam was a place we had to fight communism and that we could help the Vietnamese to reform their own country in order to better fight communism. We couldn't do it by being colonialists. We had to do it by being Democrats. That was an illusion and a very costly one. And it took Holbrook maybe three or four years to finally come to the view that we could not win and had to get out, had to find a way out. But that that's what I mean by idealism. He actually saw Vietnam as a continuation of the struggle in the streets of Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. Both of those were fights for freedom, in his view and the view of a lot of people of his generation. 
How does what Holbrook learns in Vietnam color the choices that he makes at, in regards to Bosnia? Because the, the Dayton Peace Accords were the apogee of his success and the two seem connected. And you make this case really well in the book. Vietnam dominated the thinking about Bosnia for several years. And it was really what kept President Clinton and President Bush before him from getting involved. It looked like a quagmire. We didn't understand it. These ethnic groups that we supposedly had been hating and fighting each other for hundreds of years were doing it again. What stake did we have? What dog did we have in that fight, as James Baker said when he was Secretary of State? Holbrook saw it differently. He went to Sarajevo in the winter of 92 when he was a private citizen. Couldn't get a job from Bill Clinton, who had just been elected, because too many people around Clinton disliked him. So instead of hanging around and waiting for the phone to ring, he went to Sarajevo, which was brave because it was under siege. It was a very dangerous time. Only spent 24 hours, but I tell this story at length in the book because I think it shows you something about Holbrook's need to see for himself and to have firsthand experience rather than simply to rely on briefings and what you hear in the situation room. And what he found was a fascist aggression by uh, Bosnian Serbs who were surrounding Sarajevo and were trying to destroy a multi-ethnic city and with it a multi-ethnic democracy. That was how Holbrook saw the violence after 24 hours. And he never saw it otherwise. That fixed his view. And he came back to Washington and told Anthony Lake, who was Clinton's national security advisor and Holbrook's best friend turned enemy by that time. They were enemies. He told Lake, you know, we need to be there. We need to be involved. And so for the next two years, from both outside government and then inside as Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, Holbrook was pushing, not alone, but he was pushing for American intervention because he didn't think Vietnam was the model. He knew that force doesn't solve all problems. He learned that in Vietnam. He learned to distrust the military solution. But he kind of, in Bosnia, I think he saw that there was another imperative, which was to stop genocide and to prevent Europe from being torn in, apart by the worst bloodletting since World War II and to prevent the Atlantic Alliance from being torn apart by that war. So in a way, he, he moved beyond Vietnam for Bosnia, but then he came back to Vietnam. You describe in detail the actual negotiations he brokered in Dayton, Ohio, and it's it's a masterpiece. T tell listeners about how he gets the the Serbs, the Bosnian Croats, the other parties to the conflict to agree. This business about different tables and different napkins. Right. I mean, he had the idea of bringing the warring parties, the Serbs, the Muslims, and the Croats, to a U.S. Air Force base outside Dayton, Ohio, Wright-Patterson, um, because he didn't think Paris and Geneva had a very good record as negotiating venues. He had been part of the Paris peace talks in 1968, the first face-to-face -face negotiations between the Americans and the North Vietnamese. Nothing happened. 
They literally spent months arguing about the shape of the table that they would sit at. That was for him. And meanwhile, they went out and had great food and watched the French Open and had a good time. He thought, I need to confine them to a kind of bleak Air Force base in the bleak November weather of Ohio, and they won't want to stay. Um, <laughs> certainly the French, the British, <laughs> the Germans won't want to stay, and they will have to come to, um, to some kind of a, an agreement. All the forces in Bosnia had prepared for that because the, the tide of the war had shifted away from the Serbs and toward the, the Croat Muslim Federation. Um, Srebrenica, where 7,000 Muslim men and boys were slaughtered by Serb forces, was the, the wake-up call for Clinton that this was not about ancient hatreds. This was closer to something like um, fascist Nazi war crimes. And um, Milosevic, the president of Serbia, wanted out. He was losing. He was also losing power at home. He was actually Holbrook's best ally at Dayton because he was the one who most wanted this war to end. He had gotten in over his head. He had started it. He had fueled it. And now he wanted out. So Holbrook used Milosevic and kind of brought And the scene you're talking about is where Holbrook sees Milosevic at the officers club, which is one of the only places you can get a bite to eat at the base, and brings him over to the table of the, the Bosnian prime minister, Harris Salajic, and forces them to draw maps on their cocktail napkins of where the lines separating the two entities that will become the future Bosnian Republic uh, should be drawn. And should it go around this mosque or should it go on the other side? Where should this river fall? And Holbrook was nothing if not relentless. He almost lost at Dayton. He was really ready to go home. He thought he had failed. And then Milosevic bailed him out at the last minute. And so there was peace and a very flawed peace. But there has been peace in Bosnia for 25 years. And I think Richard Holbrook, more than any American, is responsible for that. And and that ability to get the warring parties to <clears throat> excuse me to a very difficult agreement probably has a lot to do with why he finally was able to land a role in the Obama administration uh, as a as the senior representative for Afghanistan. Talk about the difficulties and the disappointments of that time. Obama did not really want to give Holbrook a job. Obama had heard from two of his senior advisors, Anthony Lake, who was the, in some ways the bird of Holbrook's Hamilton. or the We Hamilton. might want to explain to viewers just how it is that that close friendship became so embittered. They were in the same foreign service class. They were in Vietnam together. They were the young, bright stars of the foreign service. And, um, and so they were friends, but Holbrook always saw Lake as being a half a step ahead of him. Lake was more to the manor born, went to Harvard, was from a, a kind of a wasp establishment family in the Northeast. Holbrook was Jewish, although none of his friends ever knew it <laughs> because Holbrook didn't talk about it. Um, Holbrook tried to run off with Lake's wife, essentially. 
to put it pretty bluntly, um, even though that these families were close and they were children and on both sides and this, uh, unforgivable betrayal, Lake tried to be a gentleman about it because Lake is a gentleman and was a gentleman and didn't want it to define their relationship forever. But over the years, uh, it became impossible for them to sustain even the pretense of a friendship and people around them began to see this tremendous tension. But no one knew why, because this was a secret uh, and kind of remained a secret until this nosy author uh, wrote a book that revealed it. Um, I, I wrote about it because I think it had a real effect on not just Holbrook's life, but on his public service. Because when they were together in the Clinton administration, this animosity was there in the room every time they sat down and talked about Bosnia. I also think it's emblematic of the way of the bigger argument you make about Holbrook's sort of predatory nature and in personal relationships, limiting the professional opportunities he wanted for himself. He wove the two things together and other people did as well. But to Afghanistan... Uh, talk a little bit about what he tried to do and the extent to which he succeeded or failed. So Obama didn't care for him. Um, he got a job, Holbrook got a job, at, and maybe the least uh, appealing job in the in the administration, which was to be responsible for this unwinnable war in Afghanistan, which looked to him very much like that first war of his youth, Vietnam. Holbrook got that job because Hillary Clinton insisted he get it, and she insisted because he and Hillary were very close, and she really liked and respected him a great deal and, and needed him, I think, as a strategic mind. So Obama gave him the job but never gave him the trust and authority that Holbrook needed because he didn't like Holbrook, and Holbrook's behavior in meetings in the Situation Room uh, was so... A kind of mix of of speechifying, lecturing, flattering, just taking up too much room, being dramatic. No drama. Obama couldn't stand it, and iced him and froze him out. It was really painful for Holbrook. He knew it. He couldn't understand why because he was never able really to see himself. Holbrook's one great insight on Afghanistan was: yes, this looks a lot like Vietnam, and the only way. To end the war in Vietnam was to negotiate with the North Vietnamese. The only way to end the war in Afghanistan will be to, to negotiate with the Taliban. Um, we will not beat them with the surge. We will not beat them with 100,000 American troops and David Petraeus leading a total full-spectrum counterinsurgency effort. We have to talk to them. And really almost no one else in the Obama administration wanted that. Holbrook quietly pushed it. He was pretty careful. His wings had been clipped. He did not have Obama's trust. So he had to be careful, but he was pushing it and beginning to make progress and actually had opened up the first preliminary talks at the end of 2010 when sitting in front of Hillary Clinton in her office and telling her about that, that effort, um, he collapsed. And that was, that was the end of his life. He, he died in action trying to end another war, uh, the third big war of his, of his career. I love the way in the book you capture his 
uh, closing moments when he's in the hospital and he's still giving staff instructions and saying things like, I can't relax. I'm trying to bring peace to Afghanistan while reminding staff to capture every word he's saying. Like that sense that it's going to be historically important what Richard Holbrook's last words are. And his staff at that in that venture, Afghanistan, were devoted to him. He, they still have reunions on the anniversary of his death. He really created a cadre of young foreign service people, I'm sure you know some of them, who, as although they would roll their eyes about him, they learned from him and he gave them the feeling and the responsibility of history. This is history we're doing here, and I'm going to put you in the middle of it. You're not going to sit waiting you know, for your time to come. I'm going to advance you. So he was a very good mentor, although he could be a pretty exacting one. And I think the other thing to mention, because we've talked about the, the deep flaws, and there were many, and they were deep, he cared about the issues he was working on. He cared about the Bosnian people and the the genocide going on. He cared about Pakistani refugees. He cared about peace in Afghanistan. This was not just a vehicle for his ambition. He really had a deep humanitarian streak and a sense that government was for solving problems, not just for attaining high office and then uh, getting good press and retiring to a lucrative job. And that was one of the things that made him hard to take for some people who saw him as grandiose and and breaking the rules and breaking protocol. For Holbrook, it was all about getting something done as well as about being the great Richard Holbrook. For him, the two were indistinguishable. That's a really nice point. So we've got some great questions already. Um, And the first one is, you refer to America's half century. Clearly it's over. Do you see any way for the U.S. to regain significant and positive world influence? And is the era of preeminence over or ceded to China? Well, those are huge foreign policy questions of the kind that make me nervous because I can't see the future and nor am I much of a geostrategic thinker. You are better at this than I am, Corey. So maybe you should also answer. I'll take a shot. I've never seen our prestige lower than it is today. We, in the middle of the coronavirus, rather than summoning the world to cooperate to try to stem the pandemic and then find a cure, uh, we've seen the world as um, hostile and as competitors, and we want nothing to do with uh, the the World Health Organization for all its flaws. We want um, to beat Germany at finding the vaccine, and we want to Uh, turn China into a pariah, which China has already done a fairly good job of doing by itself. It doesn't need too much help from us. I don't think we'll ever be preeminent again. I don't think that's the world that we are creating now. And it's too many factors are working against it that are really out of the hands of Donald Trump even. He's just done a great job of accelerating the process. Um, What we can do and must do is revitalize our democracy. I mean, the real weakness that I see in America as an influence and as a leader is that we have no claim to lead. We have no influence because we ourselves have failed at solving our own problems, um, as well as failed at 
the two big wars that we entered after 9-11. Um, so it's, what, what claim would we make to saying we're back? Come, you know, sorry about that little interlude of uh, America first. The, we're back to be present at the creation of whatever the next American century is going to be. It's not going to happen. Instead, I would like to see us reform at home and become a model uh, because the world needs a democratic model, maybe more than at any time in our lifetime. But we can't be that model if we, if we don't live it at home. So I actually do have a different view. Um, and your outstanding um, article in The Atlantic, what that heartsick wail about what America is becoming and the way that the pandemic reveals that, I, I encourage everybody to go read. I do have a different view, um, colored, I think, by two things. The first is um, this isn't the first time of American failure, uh, right? Like even before we Vietnam. Seventies, yeah. Or think about American military forces having to integrate, protect the integration of schools in the Eisenhower administration, the McCarthy hearings. That so I think. One of the things um, I'm always skeptical about is when people, you don't do this, but many people talking about America's demise currently very often project that there was a mythical past where we weren't failing on all sorts of fronts. And I take heart from our Atlantic colleagues, James Fallow's article from about 2000. Uh, 2009, I think it is, uh, where he talks about the role of the Jeremiah in American foreign policy. That is, it's when we realize we are failing that we fix our problems. And I do think the things that the American public is demanding as a consequence of the pandemic are going to fix a lot of the problems you identify. Um, strengthening the sources of our domestic vitality. Uh, so, so that's one thing. I can see you looking to react to that. Let me just quickly say one other thing, which is that I, I also think that we often underestimate the systemic sources of American strength and the difficulty for others to attain them, whether it's dollar hegemony or being a magnet for some of the world's most talented people to come as emigres because they can be one generation um, safely in the middle class. But, but you were itching to respond. I think we don't disagree as much as it may seem. We're both saying um, the, the life of Richard Holbrook shows us moments when we failed on a scale that dwarfs in some ways uh, the failures of the last couple of decades, certainly in Vietnam. And I also think we agree that we need a revitalization of, of institutions at home because they are, they've all been in a state of atrophy, I think, for some years. Congress, the press, education. Um, I don't think we'll ever go back to the preeminent role we had. That's my main, when the, when the listener asked about that, my, my immediate thought was no way. Uh, that was a, about five minutes between 
the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the Iraq War. Um, and we made mistakes. We also did good things. I think one mistake was staying out of Bosnia for three years, and a good thing was getting involved and using diplomacy and force to end that war. Uh, but that model is is over. We just don't have the um, the leverage. We there's too many competitors. The competitors have gotten too strong, and we ourselves have lost our way. We don't have unity at home. Uh, we have nothing close to the post World War II unity that said we meet. We need to fight communism with containment. There's nothing close to that. So we we have a lot of work to do at home. I would simply point out that the Republican presidential nomination of 1952 was a very close run thing. And if Taft rather than Eisenhower had gotten it, we would have seen a very different trajectory. But I will give you the um, give you much as I would love to continue to argue about this. We have so many good questions lined up that it feels selfish for me. So next question is, there's been a militarization of foreign policy over recent decades. Do you worry that the State Department will never recover from the dominance of the military over the diplomatic process? I do very much. And by the way, so did Holbrook. He first noticed it in 1963 ah. when it seemed as if the even in the advisory mission, it was the military that was making policy in South Vietnam before we even had uh, 100 or 200,000 ground troops there. And he tried to argue the case of the State Department for the rest of his life, including sitting next to David Petraeus um, in the Obama Situation Room. But the, that whole story is the story of the military getting stronger and stronger, and not just in terms of money and budgets and personnel. And as Petraeus told Holbrook, you know, I have an airplane, you don't, I have a lot of airplanes and you don't have one. You're my wingman, but Petraeus called Holbrook, uh, my diplomatic wingman. That was quite a nifty put down. Um, not just that, but policy has become militarized and the, the, the head of central command for many years was more important than any ambassador in the region or in some ways more important than the secretary of state in setting policy from North Africa all the way to Pakistan. So that has been going on for a long, long time. And meanwhile, the state department budget was shriveling. The appeal of the foreign service was declining. I think ambitious young people were less likely to go that route. And now what we have is Donald Trump crushing its professionalism, crushing its independence yeah. from not from the president, because, of course, they serve the president, but from the Constitution and from the from the American people as their ultimate masters. And instead, he's got a secretary of state who is refuses to speak up when one of his best ambassadors is destroyed by a right-wing smear campaign, Marie Ivanovich in the Ukraine. Um, Secretary of State Pompeo, whatever he did privately, has never spoken up for Yovanovitch, which is a shocking thing. And that whole period looked like a kind of McCarthyism where loyalty had become uh, this preeminent demand and competence and um, thoughtfulness and expertise have been 
have been crushed. Who would join the State Department if Trump gets reelected? What competent person would want to become a diplomat in the second Trump term? I don't think I can think of a single one. And in fact, there will be a mass exodus if Trump is reelected. That's, that's what I heard when I reported a story about this uh, in the Atlantic a few months ago called How to Destroy a Government. Um, people, including Tom Malinowski, who was in the State Department, is now a congressman, said, from what he hears, there will be a, a flight for the exits if Trump is reelected. So I think the State Department is on life support right now. It could be revived with the right leadership um, and with real change. But it doesn't just come from leadership. It also has to come from uh, a sense that diplomacy is at the heart of our foreign policy. And that means uh, presidents restraining themselves from using the first tool that um, that they've turned to in the past few decades, which is the military. So related question, which is how can we restore the call to public service that people like Holbrook answered years ago? I mean, I think we should have compulsory national service. It wouldn't be very popular with a lot of people, but I think it would have a huge cultural effect. It would, and I don't mean military service, although that could be part of it. It could be uh, like the, the CCC of the New Deal. It could be like VISTA or like AmeriCorps. There's a lot of models. But I think we're such a divided society. We're so unequal, um, divided by race, by class, by region, and by politics. I don't want to sentimentalize the past, Corey, because you'll beat me up for it and it's also wrong to do so. But the fact that we had more or less a universal service uh, in those years after World War II, leading up to the 60s, meant that Americans had to deal with each other. Kinds of people who normally would never meet had to work together and find out what the rest of America was like and also serve their country. And that would be my one fix for this um, this sort of cult of selfishness that I think is set in at every level, high and low, would be to require national service. I think it would have a, a really big change in this uh, on the psyche of the country. I agree with that. I would add one small civil military footnote um, is that 45 years of an all-volunteer military has created so much distance between civilian society and military society that we think of our military as comic book heroes instead of as our fellow citizens. And it's hard to imagine, um, you know, if you think about Harry Truman saying, I fired uh, MacArthur because uh, he didn't he didn't acknowledge the authority of the president. I could have fired him because he was a god stupid moron, but if I'd done that, half to two-thirds of the generals in the army would be in prison. Um, right? Like because Captain Truman knew a little bit you about can't say that. You can't say that anymore. Yeah, the familiarity. Say, right. Now you have to say thank you for your service, which right. means Thank God I didn't have to do it. I'm glad it was you, not me. 
Exactly. Next question. One of the most depressing days during my two years in Afghanistan was watching Richard Holbrook lead a meeting of civilian and military rule of law experts and dismissing everyone because of his massive ego. Did you come across a lot of stories like this? I came across that story. I I didn't write about that meeting, but I heard about that meeting. I know exactly the one that you're talking about. Um, more than I could count. Everyone had such a story. Often it was the first story because they've been sort of nursing it for years ever since it happened, since they had felt bruised by him. He bruised people all the time. He spent, I don't know if you can hear the daycare screaming out. <laughs> I can, and it's a delight. You want me to close the window? <laughs> no, just keep going. All right. He was heedless of other people in a way that suggests a kind of missing piece of his mental equipment. He didn't react to how people were reacting to him. And he didn't think in some ways about what other people were experiencing when his own appetites, ambitions, or ideas were driving, uh, were driving him. So that was what went wrong with Obama. He would sit in the situation room and tell Obama, this is the you know, this is like 1965, Mr. President, and just as Lyndon Johnson had to face a historic decision, so do you about whether to send troops. He couldn't see that everyone around the table was rolling their eyes and that Obama was going cold on him. And right after that meeting, Obama told Jim Jones, his national security advisor, I don't want him in the room with me. If he's going to be at the table, he has to keep it quick. And I don't want him in the Oval Office. Didn't I? I think in the book you even recount him saying something to President Obama, like you don't have to be a black man to cry at these. That was when they first met. Obama called him to Chicago after the 2008 election to his transition headquarters to interview him because he he knew that Richard Holbrook was too big to ignore, and he didn't have a deep bench. There was not a lot of Democratic foreign policy heavyweights that he could call on. So even though he didn't have a job for Holbrook, he called him to Chicago. And within a minute, I think Holbrook lost Obama forever. The first thing he did was give him a copy of his own book signed on Bosnia, which was a sort of typical self-promoting Washington thing to do. But you don't do that with Obama. The, the first time I interviewed Obama, the first thing he said to me was, I haven't read your book on Iraq. It was Obama's way of saying, I'm not like those politicians who are going to lie and claim to have read your book. I haven't read it. And I sort of, you know, it, it hurt a little, but I basically appreciated it. Holbrook gave him his book. Second thing he did was to say, could you please not call me Dick? My wife prefers for people to call me Richard. So he corrected him. Um, by invoking his wife. And the third thing he said was he got teary-eyed and he said, you don't need to be an African-American to cry. Meaning, I am so moved to meet our first black president that I'm crying. And that is the kind of, I think it was like a histrionic display of emotion of the kind that Obama, who's facing the hardest uh, new presidency since Harry S. Truman, maybe, did not want to hear. He just didn't want to hear. It was like, what does that have to do with what we're here to talk about? 
it felt, I'm sure, like self-display, which Obama despised. So I think from that minute, those three things, it was over. And honestly, Obama shouldn't have given him a job because if he wasn't going to use Richard Holbrook, who had real talents and brought real abilities to help Obama, if he wasn't going to use him, why put him in a job and humiliate him for two years, which is what happened. So the next question takes us to the politics of the moment. Somebody asks, who do you think is on the short list to be Joe Biden's secretary of state? Should he win? Interesting question. Interesting question. I mean, the most interesting or the most sort of galvanizing choice would be you know, someone like Pete Buttigieg, who really is very knowledgeable about foreign policy. He isn't very experienced, um, but he has great, and I think he has great energy and freshness and thoughtfulness. So that would be a kind of team of rivals that would bring in the next generation. Maybe Buttigieg is a little too young to really run that building, but I think that would be a pretty interesting choice. More likely, I think Biden will name one of his old colleagues from the Senate. At the moment, no one <laughs> comes to mind, but um, someone who, that would be a more typical choice, a, a, a politician, a long-serving politician who can sort of ease in, like John Kerry, and um, not make waves one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm guessing Biden will do that because that's who he's comfortable with. And that's who he was. He almost became Kerry's Secretary of State in 2004. Holbrook and Biden were the finalists, and I, I think it was going to go to Biden if Kerry had won. So um, I want to intrude on the queue to ask a question of mine, because you make such a powerful case that Holbrook always wanted to be where the action was. And so he, and he always went to where the wars were. But there's one enormous war he didn't run towards, and that's Iraq. Why doesn't that dog bark? Why does Richard Holbrook not view himself as the person who's going to get that right? He, uh, he supported the war. He was out of government. It was a Republican administration. He was back on Wall Street. He supported the war, and according to um, reporting I did, he told John Kerry in 2002, if you're going to run for president, you had better support this coming war as well. So he saw it in political terms, as did a lot of Democrats who knew better. And I think he knew he'd made a mistake pretty quickly. And he just wanted nothing to do with it. It was a loser. He actually wanted nothing to do with the whole Middle East. He never got involved in Israel. He saw it as a loser back at home, politically just too hot to handle and no way he could uh, come out of it unscathed. So I think Iraq was just one challenge he saw as doomed. He probably felt guilty at having come out for the war in advance and never really had any temptation to go to Iraq or to write an op-ed about it. Instead, he pivoted to Afghanistan, which he saw as the more important war, and began writing about Afghanistan and going to Afghanistan, and became, as we've been saying, the top envoy on Afghanistan. 
and he would rather have forgotten all about Iraq. There's a scene in the book where a young foreign service officer named Cale Weston is in eastern Afghanistan. Holbrook, as a private citizen, visits his base, and Weston says, sir, why why haven't you ever been to Baghdad? Weston had been in Fallujah for years before Afghanistan. Why haven't you been to Baghdad? And Holbrook said, why would I go there? I, 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 don't, I don't need to go to Baghdad. I don't need to see it. I'm here wow. in Afghanistan. So I think strategically he saw it as a failure that we needed just to cut loose. And personally, it was a failure that he also wanted to. Mm-hmm. So... Um... Do you think that his support, his own support for Iraq at the time was, uh, did he take his own advice? That is, was he posturing in his support for the war? Or do you think he actually substantively supported the war and changed his view? It's hard to know because he didn't, he talked about it so little, but he did give testimony to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the fall of 2002 around the time he told Kerry, if you're running for president, you have to be for this war. And to the Senate, he said, we have fought other wars without the United Nations, for example, Kosovo. And we, it would be good to have the United Nations, but we don't need the United Nations. He, saw, he talked about Saddam Hussein as being far worse than Slobodan Milosevic as a, uh, a world stage uh, totalitarian leader. He's put him more in the category somewhere between Milosevic and Stalin. He saw, so he saw it in terms of humanitarian intervention, which had been his formative experience in Bosnia. And he saw it as a political uh, loser for Democrats if they got on the wrong side. He, I think Vietnam scarred him in that way. Democrats after Vietnam were forever afraid of being called soft. And although Obama's generation, which were who were children during after, during Vietnam, saw that as a kind of cowardice or um, just a stupid establishment idea, for Holbrook's generation, it was their life, it was their experience, and they never got over that. So Holbrook was always aware that the right wing was going to to target him as as a dove, and I think that had something to do with Iraq as well. I don't think he studied the issue and came to a uh, a very convinced um, position that he could defend. Did he make good use of his time as ambassador at the UN? How do you grade him for that period of his public service? He gets an A uh, as UN ambassador. He was Clinton's ambassador in 1999 and 2000. His Term there was foreshortened because there was a, a D- Justice Department investigation of some of those corners that he had been cutting as a private citizen that we talked about earlier. Um, and he had to end up paying a $5,000 fine. But eventually he won over Jesse Helms and was confirmed. And he made absolutely great use of the 17 or so months that he was UN ambassador. The first and hardest thing he did was keep us from getting kicked out of the UN. We had not been paying our dues and we were about to lose our seat at the General Assembly. And to restore our standing, he had to lobby every Republican in Congress and every UN ambassador to agree to a deal where our dues would go down and certain reforms would 
occur at the UN that the right wing in this country had been asking for. And, and then we would pay back what we owed. And he got that done. It was an amazing piece of negotiating and of just nonstop shuttle diplomacy between Washington and New York. He also was really important in organizing the multinational intervention force that ended the slaughter in East Timor um, and led to the independence of East Timor when Indonesia had been fueling militia violence there. That was just as he entered the job in late 99. And he also tried but failed to negotiate an end to the war in Congo. And he, I think maybe another lasting contribution was he, he made HIV AIDS a, an issue that the UN Security Council had to address, which had never happened before. There had never been a soft security threat like a disease put before the UN Security Council. And he did that. And I think that changed in many ways the course of how the UN saw um, non-military threats between and within countries. I think today Holbrook would have been all over the world trying to organize a united response to the pandemic. He would have been in China. He would have been at the UN. He would have been in Europe. He would not have allowed the United States to become something of a rogue nation in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century. Um, and his time at the UN would have been very good preparation for what we're going through now. That is actually a beautiful place to end our conversation about Richard Holbrook um, and his uh, his life as a public servant and his uh, the things that he contributed to American foreign policy, but also the the ways that his own personality limited his ability to get what he wanted. Um, my thanks, our thanks to George Packer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the book, Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of, Ameri- of the American Century. Just thank you, Richard. Thank you, George, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Corey Shockey. Thank you, George Packer, for being with us today. And thank you for this fantastic book. Thank you, Corey. And thanks to everyone who joined us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.